0: Hi, and welcome to Bread. We are an open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church, and we are in a new series called If Jesus is Supreme. In a world of half-truths, split opinions, and divergent beliefs, Paul's letter to the Colossians makes a surprisingly concrete claim. Jesus is supreme. He is the ruler of the universe, the authority in all of life. And when we fully lay hold of this fact, every area of our life is affected. So this is a series about the process of maturing. It's for everyone who knows there is more.
1: Um, what's good, everybody? I'm reading from Colossians um, sh- uh, chapter 2, verses 16 through, I believe it's um, 23. And it reads, <clears throat> therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are but a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have a lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since then you have died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are of the destined to perish with use, are based on mere human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment to the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Amen.
0: Thank you, Jonathan. Um, Hello, my name is Hannah. Um, I was having quite an experience during the worship of meeting myself, as Ed said, uh, where I uh, really had a, quite a profound moment of, oh, poo, I don't think this is the right talk for this morning. I don't know what to do. Um, maybe I could just you know, pull one out from something I wrote a long time ago, perhaps. Um, and then the prophetic words were entirely what I have written a talk about, um, which was good for everyone involved, because <laughs> who even knows? where this could have gone um, so sticking to the script um, so we're in Colossians and this is the third of the talk in this series um, I thought it'd give us a little bit of background about the town of Colossae so pardon no I don't thank you darling no I'm going to get to it is that all right do you want to rewrite this now no Are you sure confident in that I would yeah um, so policy. Um, It's located in modern-day Turkey, in then Asia Minor, and it was founded as a town around 3,500 BC. In its heyday, which is about 3,000 years later in 500 BC, it was known to be large and populous and affluent in an important trade route from Ephesus. Shortly after this letter was written, it was decimated by an earthquake and it has never been excavated. So we don't actually know a lot about this town other than um, what we know from this letter that Paul wrote to them, and he actually is quite clear on what he's speaking about, and some things that they found on the surface, some pottery and some things that they used about that, and things that have been excavated from towns nearby. So places known to have a similar demographic, similar practices. These were pagan people, and they did all the pagan good stuff like idols and sacrifices and ceremonial orgies. And Paul talks about some of this stuff earlier in the the letter. They certainly, um, almost certainly, had a lot of influence as well from the bloodthirsty gods of uh, the ancient Greek influences that would have had sort of an active role here. It was also a time of lots of movement between different places and mixing of different cults and religions, which was known as syncretism. So it was quite a known thing that they blurred. They got pieces of all these different things and and practiced them however they wanted to together. It's very common to do that. So they had a big mix of beliefs. But prior to this letter, prior to Paul writing this letter, um, they have been taught about Jesus um, by Paul's guy Epaphras, who, again, we don't know a lot about, but he mentions him several times. And it would appear that they have clearly had the gospel preached to them in all its clarity of sort of Jesus being the one true way and you've got to do this a different way and they've converted out of their paganism um, in some ways very thoroughly but the new church has been taught something else which paul is very clear about in our passage which is almost certainly that in order to continue your journey to be a true follower of jesus you need now to convert to judaism Um, And this is all right there in the text, because it it might not be completely obvious to us, but all the stuff about food and drink and religious festivals and moon celebrations and the Sabbath stuff, all stuff that we knew to be Jewish in this area. And also we know it from, because in neighbouring towns like uh, Laodicea, which was about 10 miles away, had a very, very high Jewish population. Um, And so just a little note on that, that, that it's quite important for us to not put our understandings of what we might think of sort of legalistic Jewish you know, people coming in and trying to bring the rules back in. It's not the same as our puritanical, evangelical legalism understanding. The level of identity in this for Judaism in this era that Jesus kind of came to transform and to shift and to make new is a totally different thing than what we maybe understand of it, because th- these were a people completely set apart, completely identified by the fact that they keep these laws to keep themselves separate as the chosen, pe- as the chosen people. So it was very sort of understandable that really, over the first century and the start of the church, it was really difficult for them. Lots of Paul's writing is about how this is not what we do. The law has come. Something new has happened. And Paul himself, obviously, a lifelong law-keeping, kosher-keeping Jewish man, He is building here to a clear and simple point that all of the law, all of the stuff that they're they're being taught to practice is built on human wisdom and human rules now that Jesus has raised from the dead. And those things lack any value whatsoever when it comes to dealing with the flesh. Verse 17 says, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. So shadows versus reality is a concept developed from Platonic philosophy. Um, so Paul is very much speaking to them in language that they would have understood with the sort of Greek influences that they had. And he's using it to make this point very clearly. Jewish sacrifice was a shadow of Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice. Dietary law was a shadow of Jesus coming to be the bread of life. Sabbath law, the shadow of the rest that he comes to give us. It can actually be really, really helpful for us as we wrestle with a lot of what the Old Testament says to really remember this, that... These accounts and these stories and this writing were by a people who only had a shadow of what was to come when Jesus rose from the dead and full, multicolour, multidimensional relationship with God was instated. Verse 21 says, Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teaching. Sarcastic, Paul like, and to the bone as ever. For everything else Paul ever says, and I know we can get stuck on these things that Paul says about sinful behaviours and things we mustn't do because he's quite clear about them in lots, of, in lots of the stuff that he wrote. Nothing is ever clearer than these statements that he made too. Such regulations lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. All these rules cannot solve the problem of your flesh. aesthetics and mystics and monastics of all flavors have since the dawn of time gone to all sorts of extremes from extensive fasting and dreadfully uncomfortable sleeping situations and being exposed to extreme temperatures and even castration in their attempts to deal with the flesh and get closer to God. It was very likely that Gnosticism was also an influence by this time. Um, It wasn't Very long after this, that Gnosticism really took root in the first century, which was a whole pseudo-Christian movement founded in the denial of physical matter, in the pursuit of spiritual knowledge. And interesting, but maybe as you'd imagine, the idea that the physical body doesn't matter took the Gnostics to both extremes. You'd find this evidence of Gnostic thought that proposed severe treatment of the body through rigorous denial of certain things. That was the way that you dealt with the evils of the flesh. And there were Gnostics who said that you could do it the other way because the body doesn't matter at all. You can do whatever you want with it um, because we're all about this sort of the higher spiritual knowledge anyway, which uh, I don't know, one sounds mildly preferable to me if you have to go with one heresy over another, but maybe I'm giving too much of myself away in that. But let us be very clear as we we get into what this really means for us. The Genesis account of our physical created form is that it's very good. Your bodily form is included in the Hebrew meaning of the word nefesh, which is like our soul, your being, who you really are. Your body is a part of it as it was described in the Hebrew. Our bodies, if you stop and think about it, are designed in countless ways to experience pleasure. And we are all made in God's image. Jesus, of course, had a very human body, which is a a point of contention for the Gnostics, because that's that's why they're called heretics, because they denied that Jesus was actually a person. He was born as a human baby, and he was raised as a human child. And in terms of what he did during his ministry, he went out uh, of his way to produce food to people who needed food. His first ever miracle was to produce the best wine out of water he gave up of course a lot of physical comfort during his ministry but there is no sense that the denial of our human bodies was central to the message that he came to bring or not during our time on earth anyway our bodies are fearfully and wonderfully made after all the late great eugene peterson says we don't become more spiritual by becoming any less human I have been reading a lot recently about the desert fathers and mothers. Um, they were Christian hermits, ascetics and monks who lived in the Egyptian deserts at the beginning of the third century, who were considered the founder um, the sort of organizers, the original founders of um, Christian monasticism. So this was a period of enormous transition for the early church because at the beginning of that century, at the beginning of the next century, so we're talking about the 4th century AD, 313, Emperor Constantine had converted, which effectively made Christianity the state religion. And these Abbas and Amas, as they were known, saw the ensuing cooperation between the church and the Roman state as corrupting to their faith. They felt that the only way to live as a true disciple of Jesus was to leave the distractions of the world and to seek silence and solitude in the desert intense physical deprivation interior silence and unceasing simple prayers and one of the famous ones is lord jesus have mercy on me they would just say that over and over and over and over again all the live long day these are the hallmarks of their practices but they were emulated by orthodox christians until the middle ages so for a very very long time these were our main Um, influences our brown-skinned origins of our faith let us remember and just in case anybody doesn't understand Ed's sense of humor which you'd be understand you know it's understandable not to that was a joke about very beautiful white handsome man Isaac looking like Jesus he of course does not Jesus was also a brown-skinned man Uh, the basic idea of the Desert Fathers is explained by a famous saying by a guy called Abba Cronius, who was from the third century. If the soul is vigilant and withdraws from all distraction and abandons its own will, then the spirit of God invades it and it can conceive because it is free to do so. So this is just the general idea of it. I really love God's presence. I really, really enjoy being in times of great worship. I had a great time in the prayer meeting this morning. I love God's presence. I love how wise he is and what it feels like when he is close to us. I just don't really want to do it the desert way. I don't really like dust at all. I like clean, soft things. And I like being the right temperature, not too hot or too cold. And once on a backpacking trip to Thailand, I ate a locust and I didn't like it. And I don't want to do that ever again. But these men and women, I believe, really deserve our attention today because we desperately need their wisdom in the 21st century hustle and bustle of our lives with all of the things that we have to do to look good and eat well and keep fit and keep up with all the news and what's trending. and happening in the world and making sure that we use our freeway time wisely by listening to good podcasts that expand our mind and if we're not exhausted we're not doing it quite right Christian lives today. I'm not actually sure when it comes to this passage I don't actually think many of us I might be wrong let me know if I am do feel that we are being disqualified in our our faith because of the puffed up teaching of angel worshipping people the talk that I meant to write that I tried to write several times was going to be just this simple concept of how we could receive that wisdom about the human commands and teaching that maybe we are listening to of political movements or culturally correct causes rather than Jesus going to him for that truth Um, but every time I kept trying to write that talk something else kept coming out I think that Perhaps with our, broadly speaking, generational rejection of human teachings on rules and harsh practices and puritanical mindsets, maybe, a very important baby has been thrown out with that bathwater. We live in a world that is screaming at us to work and earn and hustle and prove that you're worth it and do more and do more and earn more and make yourself more known and more and more and more. We are assaulted by this message, I believe, like we have never, ever been before in the history of humanity. And I believe it is a word from God, our creator, to us, ongoingly, not just for this morning, to slow down. Slow down. Take space. Take time. Take Sabbath. Breathe. Remember his presence. Remember the ways of his kingdom. Remember the ways you were made for. It is o- the only way we can stay alight and to not burn out, to use the vernacular of our times, to keep burning with the love that he has for us, the reality of what it is that we are, what we are called to and, oh so importantly, what we are not called to, personally and individually. Remembering, of course, that Jesus modeled this for us perfectly we were just looking at this on on the course when we got to the boundary stuff, but just think about the fact that Jesus didn't do it all. He didn't help every person he came across. He could have healed and performed miraculous signs and saved every single person alive that needed help in that time. But as our perfect example of human life, he knew his mission. He wasn't blindsided by the scale of the problem. He left crowds of people, often, who needed miracles He left them to have calm, quiet time with his friends and with his father. Resist the distractions of your busy life, brothers and sisters, like your very soul depends on it. You, as a human being, made in God's image, need time and need space, so slow down. And for God's sake, put down your phone. This evil little box of connection and convenience designed to do nothing but to keep you on it. I'm an absolutely massive hypocrite. Um, I can't even tell you what my screen time report from this week, which why does that come right before church? Good grief. I'll show you mine if you show me yours. I can't remember whose word was about this tension that we have to grasp, but somebody's was, and it was, uh, just felt so spot-on this morning. This kingdom tension, knowing that there is nothing we can do to solve the problem of our sinful flesh, our willpower. Will-worship is how the King James, I don't often love the King James translation of much, but will-worship is how it translates, verse 23, self-imposed worship. The worship of our own will. It cannot do anything to solve the problem of our unrighteousness. The moment we think we can attain victory over sin by the strength of our will alone is the moment we are worshipping our wills and not Jesus. And so what then, Paul asks in Romans 6. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means, he says. Because the other side of this tension is knowing that being alive in Jesus as you and me and all of us are, means that we know that we are so loved and we are so compelled by this love that we want to flee the practices that cause division between us and to pursue those things that bring us closer to him. We know in Casey's picture that it's it's him that gives strength to our atrophied muscles. It's him that we wanna get closer to the source of our strength. And so do not hear me say that the aesthetic practices are wrong. Fasting from foods for periods of time, fasting from devices and apps and luxuries and necessities and conveniences and pleasures are practices we wholeheartedly recommend. There is profound truth to the desert wisdom that a soul withdrawn from distraction is a soul ready to be invaded by God's presence. As long as that is the motivation as long as we know that there is nothing that we can do to solve the problem of our flesh. I, I had a, a, a wondrance this week that I wonder if some of us see this sort of, the two ends of the, the Gnosticism solution or this whole sort of righteousness scale If we've got self-righteousness, doing it ourselves on one side and then total licentiousness, do anything you want on the other side and then right in the middle is this like perfect balance of getting the grace thing. Actually, I think legalism and licentiousness are on exactly the same side of the scale because they operate in the flesh, they keep us focused on the flesh, they keep us locked in it with our old human ways of thinking. The way of Jesus is something else entirely. I really want to tell you about St. Teresa of Avila. I knew you would. She's born in the cold early spring of 1515 in the central highlands of Spain, shortly after a 300-year period known as, I'm going to say this with my Spanish accent because I learned Spanish in Spain, Complementia. It was coming to an end, this period of of relative peace between um, Jews, Christians, and Muslims, over a 300-period, a remarkable period of progress in many, many fields. And what are starting was another enormous period of upheaval in church history, rolling out from Europe to the rest of the world. Copernicus was about to make a very bold statement about the centrality of the sun. The Spanish Inquisition was just getting going. Columbus was roaming the new world. And two years later, a man named Martin Luther was going to do some uninvited church door decorating in Wittenberg, <laughs> resulting in nothing short of a revolution in Western Christian thinking. Huge change was happening in this area era. Teresa was born into a wealthy family who'd been forced to convert from Judaism to Christianity during the Inquisition, and she was educated, which was very unusual for a woman in her time because her father had educated her. However, when she was 12, her mother died, and he had to send her to a convent where she became more and more devout in her faith, despite being ill for a number of years. At the age of 27, now a nun, she was miraculously healed of her sickness, which created as you might imagine, a great but annoying zeal in her by all accounts, ultimately resulting in the fact that her convent sisters accused her of being filled with spiritual pride, which devastated her, crushed her. She spent two years unable to pray, overwhelmed by her failings. When she finally managed to start praying again, Out of nowhere in a church culture that really didn't um, encourage these things she started to hear god's voice and see full visions of jesus her account was that her visions of jesus were so real in these moments that they were amazing but as soon as they were over she was absolutely terrified Uh, she had no idea what was happening and why it was happening to her because it wasn't happening to anyone else around her. And she took it to her spiritual directors who told her it was certainly the devil and what she needed to do when she saw these visions of Jesus was to give him the fig, you know, like this, which is the equivalent of in that that time of flipping the birdie at Jesus. And um, so that's what she did, which is just a mental image I love of a 16th century (laughs) nun just flipping Jesus off when he (laughs) appears to her. I'm quite sure he really enjoyed it as well. So months and months and months of struggle ensue because she doesn't know what to do with this stuff that's still happening. And then she describes a moment of full surrender, not to her own judgments or to her spiritual directors, but to God. She stopped trying to control her prayer, but instead she just gave up. At which point she learned that it was indeed God that had been speaking to her all along. And she spent the rest of her life teaching others how to hear and discern his voice. She went on to be a major reformer in the Spanish church. But the profound piece that I want us to think about this morning, and I feel that we're being spoken to about looking at this morning, is what she called obscura. This confusion, this loss of any sense of certainty in herself and even in her directors, that was intrinsic to this process of revelation. She said it was in reaching this breaking point that she was able to see so powerfully that it was only God she could trust and she said it forged the way for a deepening of her faith and her experience and interestingly this is not a tangent I'm going to go down but she also talks about the release of creative activity that that comes with this breaking point the dark night of the soul uh, you may have heard of that uh, it's used in storytelling terms a lot, but it is originated by um, a guy who was her close friend and sort of spiritual son, a guy called John of the Cross, um, who names this necessary, this obscure, the dark night of the grace. Richard Rule calls it dark grace, which I quite like as well. So less understood than the light, the light grace, the lovely, attractive, pretty grace that we really like with our modern-day sensibilities. These ones constructed around... The hustle and the bustle and the pursuit of happiness and the immediacy. We all really love Jeremiah 29:11, 11 don't we? We say this to each other a lot. He does have plans to prosper us and not to harm us. But do you know the thing with that? It was a 70-year time scale that Jeremiah was prophesying about before that exile was over. He is good and he is doing good things. And those words this morning were so confirming of it. But I think what a lot of us are really stuck by is it does not happen on our time scale. I do not believe that what is preached to us about, or pummeled at us about what we're supposed to be by the time we're 30 or 40 or whatever, whatever we're supposed to attain in our youth, I don't really think this is a gospel truth. I don't think God necessarily cares about those lists that we have. He does care about our careers and our calling and all these details. But he's far more concerned with our understanding, our real and true understanding of his love for us. And we keep talking about this, but it really is true that holiness is embracing the full spectrum of the human experience and processing it fully like Jesus did, including the sadness, including the fear and the frustration and the anger. He felt them all, and it is perfectly holy and human to feel them too. He is a high priest who is able to sympathize with us because he has felt it after all. And I do think that Robin's word uh, to us a couple of weeks ago, I really felt this was such a profound word from God to us, to many people here about periods of discouragement and transition that we find ourselves in. The dead ends that we are facing are so important because they are teaching us how to stop practicing ourselves. And the only way we can really learn this is when we get to the end of ourselves. That's when we can start practicing God's presence. It's just a weird and mysterious truth that there are some things that we can only learn in the darkness. It's just not possible to know them in the light. I don't know what it is. The fact that the end of ourselves is a place where we need to get to, to release the most profound truths. In his autobiography, Frederick Douglass, a man who surely knew the beating heart of Jesus, described his moment of salvation like this. I cannot say that I had a very distinct notion of what was required of me, but one thing I knew very well, I was wretched and had no means of making myself otherwise. I was for weeks a poor, brokenhearted mourner, traveling through darkness and misery of doubts and fear. I finally found that change of heart which comes by casting all one's cares upon God and by having faith in Jesus Christ as the redeemer, friend, and savior of those who diligently seek him. After this, I saw the world in a new light, I seemed to live in a new world, surrounded by new objects, and to be animated by new hopes and desires. I loved all mankind, slaveholders not accepted, while still a slave. I am not sure in all of my years of um, Christian life that I have met many people whose faith and wisdom and knowledge of God's love has been attractive and real to me who wouldn't say that they have had in their own lives a profound experience of something like this whether it's at the beginning of their faith or somewhere in between it hardship is not a mark of getting things wrong The medieval spiritual writers call this defeat, this moment of seeing our abject weakness and an inability to change anything as ego compunction. Um. It would be remiss of me, I believe, to not tell you about a couple of books that have been very helpful and I think are very important about this process, if it's one that you're in. It may not be a period that you're in. Welcome to church. We're not all going through the same things, but I do think that it's uh, an important thing for many of us to be, to hearing this message um, a lot. The first book I'd like to tell you about is called Soul Care in the African American Practice by a woman called Barbara Peacock. You will, Jonathan, you will. Um, it's all rooted in the sense that we don't know enough of the roots of African-American faith in our church culture today, which of course dates back to the darkness of ships and what happened on those ships of historically documented um, prayer and conversation that happened as these wounded and terrified people traveled together. And it's a legacy that lives on in the spiritual discernment and prayer of the African-American experience. If you are African-American, I highly recommend it. If you are not African-American but you are interested in, this, in exploring this, the depth of how God meets us when we meet the end of ourselves, I highly recommend this book. The other book that is very, very good, and you can't have my copy, it's underlined on almost every page, is this, which is about, it's called The Dark Night of the Soul*. It's by someone called Gerald May, and it's just an exploring of this connection between darkness and spiritual growth about uh, John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila particularly, but it's very good to walk you through a period like this if you find yourself in one. I don't know what it is about this thing. I know that I have experienced it myself in my life in many profound ways, not least my journey back to faith, which was not a. I mean, I, I stopped being a Christian in my mid-teens, and it, I was not doing. I was actively not doing it for a decade or so. But my journey back wasn't a like sort of, you know hurrah I've seen the light thing it was a real coming back on my hands and knees and it took a number of months and years but I had this profound moment on my bedroom floor after I mean just some gross stuff had happened um and I was really locked in a place of shame and this is never going to be okay again but a real experience of my own I'm I'm nothing and God so powerfully meeting for me. For the first time I ever had ever had, had an experience of the spirit, just of, um, this is not your story, and this is not who you are, and now let me show you. I have also have bigger and smaller moments of breaking points coming at precisely, or, uh, uh, breakthroughs coming at precisely the moment of breaking point, and I don't know what it is. I loved this man for a long time. We were good friends. No, you don't come off well in this story. I wouldn't do that. We, <laughs> we were good friends. We were in the same circle. I had a very intense sense that we would do very well together. Um, and, but I also loads of girls fancied him, and I was at any round four, and I just didn't like to do things that other people did. Um, so I really resisted it for a long time. But for several months, we hung out a lot together. He gave me a lot of indication that he was interested too, um, but it was very confusing because he also gave me indication that he wasn't interested to like at a party at my house, kissing another girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The night, I went to church probably six months into this ordeal and just said, do you know what, God, I'm done with this boy and this confusion, I'm finished. And I had this really, really powerful experience of God going, yeah, let's, like, I'll just take, let's, let's deal with that. I had a big cry and felt so much better. And then the next day he asked me out. We have uh, regaled you with our visa woes many times. Um, we basically felt like God was calling us to uh, plant this church, and everything happened really fast in terms of the yeses and the raising a lot of money, and the and just the like it feeling like it was being blessed every step of the way. And we submitted our visa paperwork, and we were told that that was going to take a maximum, usually took around four months, maximum nine months. Um, and so in that period, we sort of got ready for the last, the nine-month deadline. Uh, Ed stopped working at the church he was working for, we packed up our house, we got ready, we were just like ready, and then the visa didn't come, and then the visa didn't come, and then the visa didn't come. And after 16 months, mm, 10 of which we had been, um, had moved out of our house, had been living out of suitcases, had had really genuinely everything that we put our safety and security in stripped away, one by one by one. on a truly shocking day of awfulness involving getting a car wedged between walls and vomit of a child all over me and uh, unspeakable things, I went to a large Tesco's in Abingdon in Oxfordshire, and I was on the chips and popcorn aisle when I just broke. I I don't even know what participant. I just broke. And I left my cart, and I drove home sobbing, and I got there. It was actually... Ed's mum's house, and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed and said, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done, I don't know what we got it wrong, how we got it wrong, I'm done, I'm finished, I'm finished, Ed, I can't do this anymore, I can't do this anymore, we're done, we're going, we've got to go home, we've got to go back to London, we've got finished. And he said, OK, 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 just, you know, like the kids are around, babe, go, just go upstairs. Guess what happened that minute we got the visa. Got an email saying, your visa has been granted. I don't know what it is about the breaking points that are so important to the breakthroughs, apart from experiences like that, truly helped us cling to the truth of the thing when we have needed to most, and we have needed to cling to it, to the calling and the fact that God is in it. I'm not sure I will ever reach the Pauline standard of delighting in weakness, like he tells us to, delighting in insults and hardships and persecutions, delighting in difficulties but we do know it to be true in the upside-down beautiful ways of the kingdom that the most profound breakthroughs can come in the most profound experiences of our own weakness. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. If God feels far away from you today, if you feel stuck like Joe's picture of having your feet in rock, if you feel backed into a corner like I think Robin spoke about, be encouraged today. I love this quote by Barbara, somebody whose name I've forgotten, but it says New life starts in the dark, whether it is a seed in the ground. A baby in the womb, or Jesus in the tomb, it starts in the dark. Be encouraged. His light shines in the darkness. And so I think it would be good for those of us that are in this place to respond to this today. And I think it's a very personal thing to respond to this. And I will ask Tavia and the guys to come in. Um, lead some music, but what I'd really love to do is read to you Teresa's poem called Nada Te Terbe Let Nothing Disturb You I'm going to read it in Spanish and in English and then we are going to stand and we are going to do ourselves to open us open ourselves to the Holy Spirit whose work this is to do who is the one who can encourage who is the one who brings hope Nada te terbe, nada de espante, todo se pasa. Dios no se muda, la paciencia todo lo alcanza. Quien a Dios tiene, nada le falta. Solo Dios basta. Let nothing disturb you. Let nothing make you afraid. All things pass, but God is unchanging. Patience is enough for everything. You who have God lack nothing. God alone is sufficient. So let's stand now.